Uh, I am going to do a reading for Ashley, and then Ashley is going to come and preach for us. She has asked me to read all of Exodus 1 and 2, which I think is pretty bold, Ashley. You're just going for it like that. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came with dread, came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it was a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not want to the king of Egypt to do did not want to do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased because and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this Egypt to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married to a Levite woman. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when he, she could not hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbed. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child's child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them and their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you rule and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him and give him something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become an alien in a foreign land. During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Let's pray for Ashley very quickly. Well, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for what the Bible has shared about you throughout the generations. And right now we pray for Ashley. We pray for our hearts be open to the message that she has for us about you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, Wellspring. It's so good to be with you this morning. I have gotten to know some of you in the past few months, and it's been an absolute delight, like really and truly. Um, but you also don't know a ton about me, so I thought I would start with a few fun facts about me. Um, so my name is Ashley Campbell, and I grew up uh, overseas, moving around a lot. Um, so my dad's here from Canada, and my mom's from Peru, but I was born in a country called Niger in Africa. And I spent the rest of my childhood and teenage years living all over West Africa, Southern Africa, and Central America. And I only moved to Canada when I was 17 years old uh, for university. So. If you hear me telling stories like this one time in Mali, it's because that's where I spent my childhood, which brings me to my opening story. This one time in South Africa, <laughs> when I was in high school, I attended a French international school. And uh, the French curriculum is uh, secular to an extreme. And it's, it's a really important cultural value um, for most of uh, France to have a very secular curriculum. And I, in grade 12, took a philosophy class. And my poor teacher was so irked to have, <laughs> 
to have an overly sincere Christian student in his class when he was just trying to teach us some philosophy. Um, he decided to deal with this annoyance by drawing me into debate often in class. And I know that that could be a really stressful situation for some people, but I don't remember it that way. Um, I was probably too precocious and to this day love a good debate. So I thought, well, let's get into it, sir. <laughs> but as I was reading these opening chapters of Exodus that James just read for us, uh, a certain interaction with my philosophy teacher just sprang to mind. And it was during his lesson on Immanuel Kant, who you, you don't need to know who that is, but he has this famous moral dilemma that he posed called the murderer at the door. And in this moral dilemma, he says, a murderer is knocking at your door and you know where the murderer's next victim is. And the murderer asks you the whereabouts of that victim. Don't you have to tell the truth? Isn't that what you're obligated to do as a moral person, is in any situation to tell the truth? It's this famous philosophical question. And there's lots of different answers and there's lots of interesting things to pull out of there. But my philosophy teacher was super excited because he thought that this moral dilemma was gonna finally poke a hole in my faith. So he started out by saying, what does your Bible say about lying? And I said, uh, yeah, Bible says, 10 commandments, don't lie, bad thing. He was like, ha ha, what does your Bible say about murder? And I said, yep, 10 commandments again, do not murder, super clear. Then he posed Kant's dilemma to me. He said it in World War II, I think just to make it a bit more visceral for me. He said, you are hiding your Jewish neighbors from the Nazis. Nazi soldiers knock at the door and they ask, do you know where they are? What do you do, Ashley? And I was like, well, you lie, obviously. Like, <laughs> I was like, why are you so, like, well, I did not understand why he was so excited. I was like, you lie, it's fine. And he goes, but didn't you just say that your Bible says that you're not allowed to lie? And I just remember being so annoyed I was like, oh my goodness, what? It's not like that. And, and at the time, I couldn't articulate more than that. I couldn't articulate more than, it's not like that. It's not, it's not so black and white. But he pushed and he pushed me. He's like, but wouldn't your God be angry at you for lying? And I said, I really don't think so. And I couldn't explain more than that. And eventually, I think frustrated with how the conversation was going, he kind of muttered something about like, ah, oh, faith is so illogical, and we moved on with the class. But that interaction has always stuck with me, and reading these opening chapters of Exodus, I was like, oh, I can finally say more about why it's not just about following a rigid set of black and white rules. Oh, it's so fun to be in my mid-30s now and to be studying the Bible with a little bit more understanding and a little bit more life experience and to say, right, it's about so much more than that. You see, Exodus, not just these opening chapters, but the whole book of Exodus, it's not a story about following rules, even though the Ten Commandments are literally in this book of the Bible. It's not a story about following rules. 
It's a story about breaking cycles of violence in order to make room for flourishing. I worked really hard on articulating that, so I'm just going to repeat it one more time. <laughs> Exodus is not a story about following rules. It's a story about breaking cycles of violence in order to make room for flourishing. Do you know what's another way of saying breaking cycles of violence to make room for flourishing? How about we say death to life? How about we say resurrection? How about we say the way of Jesus? That's, that's what this is all the way here in the first, in the second book of the Old Testament is the way of Jesus, death to life. So let's get into these first chapters that James so patiently read all of it to us. And we're gonna find that there's a blueprint for how to participate in this cycle breaking. It's not just something that we have to read about other people doing. There's a blueprint for how we get to participate in that today. So first of all, there's this very obvious cycle of violence happening. Pharaoh is afraid. He's afraid. He has a scarcity mentality. James preached about that a couple weeks ago. He thinks there's going to not be enough because there's so many Hebrew people. And out of his scarcity, out of his fear, he begins a cycle of violence. He oppresses the Hebrew people. And it escalates in, that, in those opening verses of Exodus. It escalates from enslavement all the way to infanticide. In our modern day, we define that as genocide. He goes from being scared of them to putting in place policies to perpetuate a genocide against them. This is, this is violence on a scale that is hard to wrap your head around. And I think that probably all of us can think of, of examples in the news today that feel that way. Violence on a scale so, so big, it's hard to wrap your head around. What do you do in the face of such violence? Then the story takes us to individuals within this, this larger thing that's happening. First of all, we see the midwives, who I just love. And the midwives interrupt and break Pharaoh's cycle of violence within the sphere of influence that they have. They have the ability to, to break it when it comes to babies being born. And how do they do that? How, how do they interrupt a cycle of violence that's so big and, and comes from the most powerful place in the land? Well, it starts because they fear God. It's the first thing we learn about Shifra and Pua. They fear God. To my, to my ear, to my elder millennial ear, fearing God, it, it makes me a little uncomfortable. I'll be completely honest with you. I really, I had to dig around again. I had to dig around and be like, okay, what, what is this? What does this fearing God mean? I think it's not quite landing with my, my way of talking, with how I use words these days. And the more I dug, the more I realized that what it means that they fear God is that they know God, is that there is a knowing of God that inspires awe in them, that there is something in knowing 
that God is creator, that knowing that God is the one who created all things and said, this is good. And it inspires an awe that means that even if Pharaoh, the highest authority in the land, calls them and gives them an order, that's, that's not, they don't fear that. That's not as awe-inspiring. It doesn't, it doesn't move them to act in the same way that knowing God moves them to act. So I, as I'm preaching about fearing God, I'm gonna use the expression knowing God in a, in a way that inspires deep awe and that forms your values to the point where you act differently because you know who God is. And it's great because they knew this before crisis hit. They didn't have to figure out in the moment of being told this order to kill the baby boys what they were going to do. Because they knew God going into that situation, they knew, they knew how to act. They knew what they were going to do. And they certainly knew what they were not going to do. The next thing that they do is they disobey. They straight up don't do what they're told. It's great. They just turn around and absolutely ignore what Pharaoh told them to do. To the point that Pharaoh calls them back and is like, excuse me, ladies, but it seems like there's a lot of Hebrew boy toddlers around. What's going on? And then they straight up lie. They just lie. They make up one of history's most extravagantly silly stories. They just say, like, an entire group of women give birth in a very specific way, and it's not like this other group of women, and it's always super fast, no matter if it's your first baby or your fourth baby, no matter how big the baby is, no one ever has a breech baby, don't worry about it. And because Pharaoh is completely out of community with birthing people, like, you, you get that right away, because he's just like, oh, okay, I guess that's a thing. So these women are so sneaky. They are counting on the fact that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they exploit that. It's, it's, this isn't a sanitized story in which we can be like, and it was okay, or we can make like a logical thing of like, but it was okay that they lied. They just lied. And they lied because they knew God. That's it. They lied because they knew God. The next thing that I think is important is that they were in the position to do so. They were in a position to do so because of their relationships, because they were Hebrew women, because they served the Hebrew women, because they were among them. That's what allowed them to use their relationships and position to protect against Pharaoh's pretty evil thing that he was demanding. And we're gonna see throughout that it's, you have to be in a relationship in order to break a cycle of violence. We're gonna see how Moses gets that super wrong the first time he tries to interrupt a cycle of violence. But it was, so first they knew God, they feared God, they knew God, they disobeyed. Who did they disobey? Well, they disobeyed the thing that wasn't coming from God. They were creative. They were creative in their obedience of God's heart, which meant disobedience in the law of the land. 
And they, were, they did all of this from a position of community, of relationship. The next people we see sort of breaking Pharaoh's cycle of violence is Moses' mother and his sister. And they are going to interrupt the cycle of violence, break the cycle of violence from within their smaller sphere of influence. Their sphere of influence is their family. And they're going to they're gonna do everything they can to, to break that cycle of violence Pharaoh started within their sphere of influence to protect the baby and their family. Now here's what we, we learn about Moses' mother. She saw what a beautiful baby he was. It was seeing how beautiful he was that inspires what comes next. Now when I was reading this, I'm a mom, and something in my heart clenched, and I was like, yes, I'm so, I'm so happy that this one baby Moses gets saved. I really and truly am. But what about all the other ones? What, where are they? What, who's saving them? And I took a step back, and another thing that I am is an author, a writer, a storyteller. And, and a lens of, of storytelling really helped me understand what was happening at this point in the story. When we are learning about big picture things, things where the numbers and the statistics are, are so large and horrific that you can't really understand it, a really helpful way to bring in compassion and empathy is to zero in on the one story. We hear the numbers of refugees fleeing from Syria, and we care, but it helps us to hear the story of one, because then we begin to understand the plight of the many. And so in the story, in, in the profoundly impactful storytelling of Exodus, we come into this very personal individual story of, of the mother and family of Moses. And it, it helps us to understand what everyone around them is experiencing, the great grief. And I know that Moses' mother is one of many Hebrew women who is, who is being sneaky and clever and putting everything at risk to protect their child. And we're also, like, Moses becomes very important to the rest of the story. There's that straightforward thing, too. It makes sense to zero in. But I just wanted to say, I think that there's more happening there. I think that it helps us to understand, in a personal way, what they are experiencing. It, saying that she sees what a beautiful baby it is is also a way of, of, of telling us that she knows God. She is moved by the beauty of creation. That's God's heart. Go back to Genesis. Danielle talked about this last week, right? Have you ever seen a baby that wasn't incredible? Have you ever, have you ever been around a newborn and not thought, wow, right, new life, new life. She, Moses' mother has a heart like God's. She sees creation and she says, this is good. Like the midwives, she knows God. She also breaks the cycle of violence through disobedience. It's a pattern. She does it through this great, <laughs> she does it through this great thing where it looks like she's following the rules because she's going to throw her baby into the Nile. That was Pharaoh's, if you go back, that was Pharaoh's exact order, throw them into the Nile. So she's going to follow the rule in bad faith. 
She's gonna follow Pharaoh's rule in bad faith. That's how she's going to be obedient to God's heart. She's gonna be disobedient to Pharaoh. So she, she does throw her baby into the Nile, but she ensconces him in safety first. Her disobedience leads her to make her child safe. She also risks everything. Part of breaking a cycle of violence, part of participating in breaking a cycle of violence means that you will be at risk. Means that you, it will always be risky to you personally if you step in, if you step out really. And when I was thinking about what it is that Moses' mother is risking, I thought about this poem by Somali British poet Warsan Shire. It's called Home. It's a really powerful piece of poetry that's trying to express the refugee experience. Trying to help, trying to put words to why anyone would undergo the kind of suffering and the kind of risk that so many refugees take in leaving home. And there's this one line that says, you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than land. That's what Moses' mother is doing. She is risking everything to interrupt the cycle of violence. And then we have Moses' sister. (sighs) Moses' sister. Okay, if you're a parent, (laughs) she is so encouraging because Moses' sister, this young woman, she, I just, reading about her, I was like, oh yeah, the young people in our life are actually looking at what we say and what we do. They are picking up on it. They are being formed, even if maybe, you know, I have, I have little kids and I can say, hey, come around and sit at the table and we'll do a Bible study together. And they'll still come and, and they'll smile and they'll be there. And, and that might not always be true. There might be times where they need to explore things in their own way, where mom saying it isn't gonna be the best way for them. And, and that's good, that's okay. But Moses' sister reminds me that even in those times where it doesn't look as straightforward as it does when they're younger, they're still watching. And they're still being formed by how we act, how we speak. Because this is what Moses' sister does. She, is sent simply to watch from afar. Her mother does not ask her to risk herself. Her mother says, please just go watch and see what happens. But Moses' sister has grown up around women who know God, who disobey, and who risk everything to interrupt cycles of violence. So what does this young woman do? She boldly approaches an Egyptian royal. She risks her bodily safety And she goes and she approaches this princess and then she is so sneaky. She is so incredibly sneaky. Not only does she see that her brother is physically safe, but in that moment, in that instant, she goes, hey, I have a really cool idea for you. I know a lady, just a lady, and she could feed the baby. And you're not lactating, so this could work out really well for you, right? So the young woman who knows about child rearing, she's seen it, right? She knows that the princess can't feed the baby. She's so clever. And then so not only does she risk everything 
disobey the law of the land, disobey her mom who said, just watch. And this results in Moses being safe, Moses being returned to his family, and Moses' family making extra money. I love it. She, she does exactly what she has always seen the women around her do. She acts exactly like her community. Now Moses grows up in the Egyptian court and unfortunately gets it super wrong the first time he tries to interrupt a cycle of violence. He, he really just messes up. He does not know how to do this. He had to leave his family of origin when he was just a toddler. He has spent most of his life in the Egyptian court from where the cycle of violence started. We can assume that he has heard, he has been formed by the values that would lead to a cycle of violence being started. So what does he do? He sees violence happening and his first instinct is to meet violence with violence. And there, there's something logical to that. We can't fault him. I know that I know that, that can be my first instinct. You know, my husband just laughed because he knows that that's true. <laughs> you know, my family's here today, so you can ask them how argumentative I am. You know, how if someone wants a fight, I'm your girl. So I get it. I, I really, I get Moses here. I'm not judging him. He acts out of the values that have formed him to this point. And not only that, but he gets super embarrassingly called out by the community. So he came in, he was like, I'm going to help the Hebrew slaves. God, ah, what have I done? Hide it. It's just a very, obviously not a historically accurate reenactment, but gives you an idea. And then he's like, oh no, and just like hides. And then the next day he's like, I, I imagine, just imagine with me for a minute. This is not biblical. This is just me imagining, okay? It's not in the Bible. I imagine the next day he's like, yeah, I'm helping the Hebrews. Look at me. I got rid of that guy. And he's like walking around and he's like waiting for someone to be like, oh, Moses, thank you so much, right? Because he's around them again. He has to go seek them out. He's like walking around and then he sees two Hebrew men having an argument we don't know what about. And he's like, oh, I did so good yesterday. Let me, let me intervene here again. Guys, what are you doing? Don't argue. You're brothers. And they turn around and they're like, excuse me? Who do you think you are? We watched you kill that guy and then run away. What? Go away. Go away. His balloon is quickly deflated. He went in, I think, waiting for someone to be like, high five, thank you for helping us. And instead he got told, who are you and why are you coming here? You don't even know us. Causing trouble, pretending that you're some hero, you're not. He doesn't have community or relationship with them. Pharaoh finds out what he did. Moses is in trouble and he runs to the desert. Once again, he's just trying to save his skin, just out of there. Out in the desert, thank goodness for Moses, he has another opportunity. He is given another chance to maybe try something new. 
And I think he goes about it a little bit backwards, which makes sense, he's learning. He's, he's undoing things that values he was formed by. But this time around, out in Midian, Moses acts a little bit more like his mom and his sister. He sees these young shepherdesses getting harassed by these shepherds. First of all, like, why are they doing that? We find out that there's enough water for everyone. It is, it is just for the sake of throwing their weight around. It is just for the sake of having power over someone who physically has less than you. What does Moses do? Moses uses what he has, his sphere of influence, which is he is a man who is physically bigger. He is a man who can, who can intervene in a different way than the shepherdesses have the, the ability to. So he does that. He drives those guys away. He, he puts his body at risk. He says, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that you're not, that like hurting the weak is not okay. And I'm not saying that the young shepherdesses are weak. I'm just saying that they physically are smaller than these big shepherds, right? So Moses risks his body, he gets in, he has skin in the game, and then he remains in community. He's like, right, maybe I gotta stick around when I do something. When I interrupt something, maybe I should stick around. And he waters the sheep for them, and he stays. And he risks the shepherds bringing their friends back. You know, he, he remains accountable for the action that he took. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't try to, to get out of it. He stays. He builds relationship. And it's out of that that he's able to find somewhere to live and a family to join. And in the next few chapters, we're going to find it's also how he begins to know God. It's from there, out in the desert, that he meets God at the burning bush. So he begins to follow that pattern that we've seen that allows us to break cycles of violence. It's, it's not always about physical violence, right? These stories are very much about physical violence. And that's, that's really helpful for, for us to understand. It's a simple place to start, right? We, we see physical violence happening and we interrupt it. But there's all kind of violence around us. There's all kinds. There's, there's the really small, insidious cycles of violence, the ones where we speak harshly to each other, the ones where we shame each other, that slowly break our soul down. There's the way in which we become desensitized to the suffering around us. It's overwhelming, it's too much, what could I possibly do? So violence is allowed to continue because we get comfortable, because we're not, we don't know how or, and I think it's about not knowing how. I, I think we're all in our heart of hearts wanting to interrupt those things and break cycles of violence. But it's hard, it's hard when you're comfortable because comfort is not taking risks. Comfort is I'm not gonna have skin in the game. I'm not gonna risk everything. And the risks can be small. Ian came and said hello to me earlier, and he doesn't know this, but on my first day at Wellspring, I came in here just bruised and battered in my soul. I had spent two years grieving, 
grieving the end of a previous time at a church. One, one that, is, that is flourishing and doing its thing, this isn't about them. It's about how I arrived here with a lot of cynicism and a really big chip on my shoulder. And Ian shared a story of how I expected him to be really condemning towards a certain group of people that he was telling me about. And instead, he told me, man, but we knew so many good people. That was the thing. I had just met him. I had just met him, and he spoke with kindness and grace about people who had done, not, it's never a comparison, but, but who in my, in my mind were much more guilty of much more violence. And I realized that the thing that I was being invited to, if I knew God, was to, was to love the place that I had come from was to love and to bless the place of my wounding, was to risk my ego. That's what I had to risk. I had to risk, I had to risk the comfort of having named my pain. That's really, that can get really comfortable. It's super important to do, super important to do, but it can become a really comforting place to sit in, to say, this is my hurt, this is who I am, and it actually becomes a risky thing to break that cycle because all that was happening was the pain that I had felt was continuing in me and would have continued because I would have, I would have gotten up on this stage and preached out of that. And I don't think James would have let me. <laughs> but there was a, that was the risk of the violence continuing. And it was the story from this person I had just met that, interrupted me. Why? Because he was gracious. Because he found the loving and kind thing to say. And that interrupted me. That interrupted the violence cycling around in me, the pain. And it was an invitation to me to interrupt the cycle of violence and pain I was in. And you can ask Ian what that story is. <laughs> um, but I wanted to share that because it's, yes, if you have an opportunity to stop someone from killing babies, do it. I hope that you do. If you have the opportunity to disobey an authority in order to be like God, in order to act in love, do it. But the reality is most of us are gonna be invited to break cycles of violence in much more quiet, mundane ways. And the reality is if you're thinking like, man, I'm fired up to do this. I'm going to know God and I'm going to be disobedient to the ways of violence and obedient to the ways of love. That's another way you can think of it. I'm going to be disobedient to the ways of violence and obedient to the ways of love. So God's ways. And I'm going to be sneaky and I'm going to be creative and I'm going to come up with clever solutions just like these people in Exodus. And I hope you're fired up and I hope you're excited. The slightly bad news is that it's probably not going to be standing before Pharaoh. It's probably going to be, did my spouse speak harshly to me? And am I instead gonna speak kindly to them? Cycle broken. Is my child freaking out about something that I as an adult deem irrational? Am I gonna join in the freak out? 
Or am I going to breathe and be calm and offer an oasis of peace? Am I going to run away from my needy neighbor who just always seems to need to talk and, and always and, and is in a cycle of loneliness and it just feels burdensome some days? Or am I going to say, oh no, I interrupt you, loneliness. I interrupt you, loneliness. Hello, how are you? What are your hobbies? <laughs> Those are the ways in which I think most of us today will be invited to interrupt cycles of violence. And why? It's not just interrupting them and then it's over. It's in order to make room for flourishing. Because do you know what happens in a home where harsh words are met with grace and kindness? There are less harsh words overall. Do you know what happens to a needy, lonely neighbor who experiences connection over and over again? They become less lonely. Things change. Things shift. We enter into the territory of flourishing, of God's way. All right, I've talked for a long time. I hope some of this is going to serve you in the days and weeks ahead. I know for a fact the harsh word thing is probably going to play out for most of us in like the next couple hours. <laughs> so, you know, let's, let's see what God's inviting us to, church, okay? I'm going to pray for us now. Join me. Father God, it's so exciting to know that what you call us to is, is heroic, is, is an answer to the ache of, but there's so much wrong, what do I do? And you say, interrupt it, don't be okay with it, stop it and make room for flourishing that's, that's the God I want to serve. That's who I want to follow. That's why I'm still in church, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that all the way at the very beginning of the story in the Bible, it's so obvious that this is your heart and this is your way and this is what your people are called to. Lord, free us from being rigid rule followers. Free us from that in all the ways that it's comforting to try and apply a black and white narrative to the world and help us to be excited about being creative, to know your heart so we can creatively go into the world and interrupt the cycles of violence to make room for flourishing. God, I pray for anyone who's feeling like, okay, but how do you know God? What does that even mean? Lord, and I pray that in the days and weeks ahead, an answer to that question will unfold. I pray that Jesus, the one who helps us to know who you are, Lord, becomes an answer to that question. In the, only the ways that you can meet people, God. In only the ways you can meet people. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be in community. I, I think that I have still weeks and months ahead of me where every time I'm given a mic at Wellspring, all I can say is thank you, thank you, thank you for these people. Thank you for how they've welcomed me. Thank you for how they love my children. Thank you that they keep acting in ways that remind me of who Jesus is. Bless them, Lord God, and thank you that we are part of them too. In Jesus' name, amen.